Enjoyment and fear are typically not thought of in terms of being coexistent at the same time. Usually we would say that fear drives out happiness. If there's happiness, fear has been pushed to the side. But there are times when fear and joy go hand in hand with one another and actually make the experience better. Let me give you an example. Remember the first time you went to an amusement park? My dad took us when I was in third grade, and I remember him taking us to the Rebel Yell roller coaster. And we stood in line for, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes, and he said, here, Nate and Ben, you guys sit in this front seat of the roller coaster. Okay. So there we were. We sat in the front seat, and the lap bar came over our legs, and the roller coaster left the chute. And around the corner we went, and then we saw the big hill. And the chain that pulled us up the hill, ka-clink, 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 ka-clink. And it happened to be the biggest roller coaster in the park, and it was a big one. And as we're going up the hill, my brother and I, he's in fifth grade, I'm in third grade at the time, uh, we were screaming like little girls, like, yeah, kind of thing. The fear was rising up within us, and then we hit the crest. And if you remember being in the front of a roller coaster, you remember that you hang over the edge until the weight of the roller coaster passes, uh, the midpoint of the weight of the roller coaster passes the crest, and then it whips down. So we're on the front kind of hanging forward. And down we went, screaming like little girls. The fear actually served the joy. We loved the ride after that. Uh, some of you may have gone parasailing, where you're on the back of a boat and you're harnessed in, and the parachute goes out and the line is let out, and all of a sudden you are rising up in the air and going on this ride for 15 minutes or so. The height of the parasail is what actually leads to the excitement of the ride. The fear that's there gives you the enjoyment of the ride. Um, you've maybe been on a hike near a cliff and you've had to scoot along a little edge and you can tell what I'm fearful of. It's, it's heights, I guess, because all of these have to do with heights. But you get past that cliff and you're exhilarated by it and you say, man, that was enjoyable. Uh, when it comes to our relationship with God, what we see in this passage this morning is that there is this healthy combination where fear serves our joy, where joy goes hand in hand with our fear. Our fear of God is good. Um, if you're joining us, we are in this book called Ecclesiastes. And you should know a few things about the book. I'm going to go through this quickly because we've been studying this for a couple of weeks. Uh, Ecclesiastes is written by a wealthy king who goes out and sees his successful kingdom and he asks the question, what is the purpose of all of this? His conclusion of all of the success is that it seems to be taking place on an earthly level. And he says, absent from God, this is vanity. This idea of vanity is this idea of a mist. It's something that you can't package and hold on to. It's something that can frustrate you if you try to bottle it up. 
he looks at everything that's going on and he says, this is sort of just misty. It's, it's a vapor. The meaning of it is, is sort of lost on us. So he takes one step further and he says, well, all of this is happening. In one view, it's taking place under the sun. And this phrase, under the sun or under the heaven, has the idea that mankind is not taking God into account for the life that he is living. So he's running around doing all of his toil, all of his work, as we'll see here, and he's just doing it on this very horizontal level where he's not taking anybody into account except humanity. It's life under the sun. Life goes no further than the sun. But then Solomon pulls back after he says that this is vain, and he says, there has to be a purpose to all of this toil, but it's perhaps meaningless in the way that we look at it. If you look at it as just life under the sun, uh, that is, it's like a mist, it's vapor, it's vanity. We need to be looking at life from the hand of God. And so you have this theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes where he will talk about life and just this hamster wheel, and he, he's sort of saying, man, this is all vain and vanity. And then he pulls back and he says, but I want you to see that life under the hand of God, when you see life as a gift from God, it is enjoyable, and there should be joy there. So these are pictures that you have to keep in mind as you read the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we're going to cover all of chapter 3 and I've got two points for you. The first point is simply this, life without God. Life without God and that's in verses 1 through 8. The poem that Pastor Mike read is a very common poem. It's a popular poem. If you've been around for a while, um, like the 60s a while, you might remember that group called The Birds. And they had this song called Turn, Turn, Turn. I'm not going to sing it for you, but most of you would hear it and you go, oh, I remember that song. The group put this song together during the Vietnam era, talking about a time for this and a time for that, and their emphasis at the end was that there was a time for peace. This poem is often read at occasions like weddings or funerals. It could be read at graduations. It could be read at a lot of events where God is not even the center of the event. And it's interesting that this poem fits in scenarios like that because Solomon has intended for our minds to think about this in a very, if you will, sort of secular way, life under the sun, so let's go through it, and I hope to develop it a little bit more for you so that you see it. Let's just notice what Solomon draws out here in the rhythms of life. He talks about it. There's a time to be born and a time to die. This is absolutely common to everyone. Everyone here has had a point in life where you were born. And unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime, we will die. It's been that way since Adam and Eve. He takes his eyes off of humanity in the next one. He says there's a time to plant. He's looking at the fields here. The farmer has to go out and plant the seeds. And not only is there a time to plant, but there's a time to pluck up what is planted. And again, this is part of the rhythm of life here. You plant seeds in the spring in Michigan and you reap them in the fall. 
He says this as well, the third category, there's a time to kill, more than likely referring to war, and a time to heal. So you step back from war. Uh, Next, there's a time to break down, probably a theme of construction. As you put your hand to work and you see a project, that project might need to be taken down, and then there's a time to build back up, construct again. There are times in life when we're called to weep. We weep with those who weep, and then there's a time to be absent from our weeping and then have laughter. There's a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance. There's times where we're going to be emotionally hurt, and then there are times where we can enjoy life and have a little hop in our step. There's a time where he says to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. So agriculturally, a farmer would go out to his field and if the frost had pushed up stones, it was time to remove them. Or if an enemy had taken your field, they would have thrown stones on the field so that you couldn't plant anything. It was a tactic of war. However, there was a time then to go out to your field and pull all of those stones off the field. He says there's a time to embrace. And that's right, there's a time to give someone a hug. Those are natural times, but you can't go on hugging everyone all the time. So there's a time not to hug or not to embrace. There's a time to seek for things. Think about the woman who lost her coin. She goes searching for it. But there's also a time to lose, meaning it's a time to cut your losses and and call it a day. There's a time to keep things. Uh, Perhaps you have an old jersey that's been sitting in your closet since high school and you just can't let go of it. But at some point, somebody comes along and says, it's time to cast that thing away. We got a clean house. Declutter here. He says there's a time to tear. So he's thinking about fabric here. And there's also a time to take that piece of fabric that's been torn and put stitches through it and sew it and perhaps turn it into a garment. He says that there is a time to keep silence. There's a time where we should just be quiet. And then there's a time where we should open our mouth and speak up. He says there's a time to love and a time to hate, probably informed by the next phrase where there's a time for war and there is a time for peace. Uh, This is a poem that Solomon has given. It's supposed to catch our attention. You notice that there's a rhythm, there's a cadence to it, and the reader of this would catch this, this back-and-forth nature of it. Um, As you observe the poem, you also can't help but notice that these actions that he talks about, they occur in time, in life, but if you look at them from a worldview that is absent of God, your conclusion is that these are actions that exist at the opposite end of a spectrum. There's a time to be born. Well, what's the opposite end of the spectrum? There's a time to die. There's a time to speak. What's the opposite end? There's a time to be quiet. There's a time to mourn. What's the opposite? Then dance or grief and laughter, weeping and laughter. You notice that these are opposites at at each end of the the spectrum, and Solomon is purposely doing that in order to show this truth that the events in life, they cancel out. You're born, you die, zero. You 
plant, you pluck up, zero. The field is the same. You weep, you laugh, opposite ends. They balance out, it's zeroed out. And Solomon is using this poem not to just be a philosopher about everyday life to tell you what you already know. He's setting us up for something. He's saying you go into each one of these categories and you exert energy. This is part of your work. This is part of your toil. This is part of sort of what you pour your life into. Each of these are things that you put your hand to the plow and you carry out the duties in these categories. This is everyday life. And so Solomon gives us this poem, and then he leads us to verse 9. And I know that in many of your Bibles, there's a paragraph break, and the commentators are frustrated by the paragraph break. It's not supposed to be there. Verse 9 should actually go at the end of the poem because it's sort of a rhetorical question that exists. He says, after this poem where everything cancels out, I have a question to ask. I go into each one of these areas of life And now I'm asking, what does man have to gain from all of his toil? As he goes into each one of these categories and he's pouring out his energy into each one, what does man have to gain from all of this? Now keep in mind where the poem started in verse 1. This is life where? It's life under heaven. It's life under the sun. It's life that's not taking God into account. And the question is, as I go through each one of these categories of life, the answer, what does man have to gain from all of his toil, is there's no gain. There's no benefit. There's no advantage. You think about life. You live, you die. You're put in a box, you're lowered into the ground. At that point, you have no gain. He who dies with the most toys still dies, can't take him into the next season of life and say, see what I have to show for And so Solomon sets this up in sort of a kind of depressing or skeptical tone. If you're coming from a non-Christian worldview, um, you might look at life after you've thought about it for a while and you might agree with him and you might say, yeah, life is kind of mechanical. It's kind of sterile. We're kind of robots that are governed by the seasons of life. The sun comes up, my body wakes up, and I move to the bathroom to get ready for the day. And then I'm pushed out the door and I go to work where I enter into the door there, I perform my labors, I leave, I go to the grocery store, get my stuff, come home, and that's a day. Eventually, my robotic life that keeps going through this cycle over and over again comes to an end and I'm discarded on the pile and there's nothing left. There's no gain for me as a robot. But if you start to ask the questions that Solomon is asking, like, if this is life under the sun, there must be something more to it. And in this particular chapter, he's asking questions like, if these are seasons and times that are in our lives, who sets these times? Who caused me to be born and causes me to die? Who leads me into times of weeping and leads me into times of laughing? Who leads me into times of war and times of peace? Who is the one that's really behind this? Who sets all of these times? And not only that, but why are these times set? Why are we living in these boundaries that, from a non 
biblical worldview, cancel each other out. So in verses 1 through 9, we're really looking at life without God is a zero. It really is a zero, and that's what Solomon's saying. But now he turns a corner. There's a shift that happens now at verse 10. And as you look at verse 10, especially down through verse 15, now you notice the language of God. God is being brought into this worldview where he's able to see God now behind all of this. So point two is life with God. Here's the shift. Solomon moves our eyes away from creation in verses 1 through 9, now to the creator. And notice what he says in verses 10 and 11. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Now, if you like to mark up your Bibles, I've done this in mine. You see verse 11, where the word everything is there? You see in verse 10, where the word business is? You see the word, uh, verse 9, where the word toil is? He's talking about everything in the sense of life, your toil that you're doing in all of these seasons, the busyness that God keeps you doing. And so I've circled all of those in my Bible. I've connected them with lines, and I've drawn a line up to verses 1 through 8 because he's asking the question again, when you're in these seasons of life and exerting toil, exerting business or busyness, you're doing everything, he's asking the questions, what's going on here? And he steps back and he says, God is the one who is actually giving these things to us in these times. Now, several observations as we look at verses 10 and following. Number one is this. God is the one who keeps man busy. God is the one who keeps man busy. In a non-biblical worldview, you're looking at the seasons of life that just exert themselves on you, that wake yourself up in the morning, that move you through the day, that move you through the months, that move you through the seasons, that move you through life, and then eventually the, the power of life comes upon you and you're dead. In a biblical worldview, things are totally switched up here. And Solomon is saying that God is the one who is actually waking you up in the morning, moving you on through life, and then bringing you home into glory. He has given us our tasks. He has created us to have things to do. This goes all the way back to the beginning of Scripture where we learn that God created us to be busy with the things that he's given to us. He's the one who has set things in motion and set us in motion to carry out life. He's created these ebbs and flows. So it was his plan to mark our lives with birth and death. It was his plan to give us the task of planting vegetables and reaping them. He has given us the task of breaking things down and building things up. He has designed and created this world and us with these rhythms that we find ourselves in. He's the creator of all this. So even right now, September 26th, 2021 at 1021 in the morning, or 2021 at 1021, yeah, 21's this morning. God has created this moment, and he has put you in this moment to 
be right here and to be part of this moment. This is part of God's moment for you. To be busy, to be making work here, to be like expending your energy to get here this morning. This was something that God gave to you. And not only is it something that God gave to each one of us, like he was involved in it, but we see, second observation, that God's timing is fitting. God's timing is fitting. It says here in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Um, Some of your translations might say appropriate. Another translation reads this way, all that he has done is apt for its time. God is making everything beautiful in the time that it occurs. So you remember when you were in school, there was that loud bell that rang in the hallways that determined when classes started. So then you had five minutes, the beginning of the day, first bell rings. Oh, I got five minutes to get things out of my locker, grab my books, and get to class. Bell rings, and now my energy is supposed to be given over to this the subject here. Someone determined when the bell would ring at the end of that class so that the hallways would be filled with life and people would be exerting energies, going back to their lockers, grabbing what's needed, going back to class. And then another bell rings, another season of the day. Bell rings again. Here comes another season. Here comes lunch. So you go back to your locker, grab your food, eat your food. Bell rings. You're done with lunch. Move on to class. Each of those were like seasons in the day. Not all of those seasons for you were enjoyable. Some of you were like, that season of math during third hour, that was not an enjoyable season that I like to do. But somebody determined that you should be in math class from this time of the day to that time of the day. Some of you, it wasn't math. It was things like history or or English. But somebody determined for you to be exerting energy, going back and forth to your locker, entering into that English class with Mrs. Johnson and reading the Scarlet Letter or something like that. You were sort of set up to be in there. And now you look back and you should say, I'm thankful for the math class that I had to go through. I'm thankful that the teachers didn't give up on me and tried to round me out with literature. I'm thankful that somebody was determining time periods for me. Now I look back and I see the beauty of it. I see that there's a bigger picture to all of this. Down in verses 16 and 17, Solomon goes on with this time theme and says in verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. But I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And his point here is that as he looked at the injustices in society, he knew That from God's point of view, there was a time in which all of those injustices would come under the judgment of God and be dealt with. Here's the point, though. As a Christian, you can believe that everything is happening in God's appropriate timing. Everything. Everything on each end of the spectrum, positive or negative. 
Which leads us to observation number three. Because we don't like the negative, Solomon tells us it's okay to struggle with God's timing in your life. Um, You see it here in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Um, Doug Wilson uses this illustration that I think is helpful. Uh, We can't understand everything that God does. Perhaps it was your grandma who made one of those quilts for you. If you were to look at the underside of the quilt, there's all kinds of knobs from knots that were tied under there. There's all kinds of maybe frayed pieces of fabric that are under there, maybe some loose threads on the underside of that quilt. And a lot of times, you would have to take that quilt and peek around at the front side to see the beauty of it, right? If you thought grandma's quilts were actually beautiful. Um, They were, okay? Um, When we look at God's timing... God has given us a capacity to understand that there is a time from the past and there is a time for the future. But we just have the capacity to know that that exists. We don't have the capacity to understand the whys and how it looks from his perspective. In fact, we're only located at this one point in time and we're, we're struggling with, God, how can this be good? How can this be beautiful in your time? I'm seeing sort of the knobs and the loose ends. I'm not seeing how it's connected together from your viewpoint. That's what he's saying here in verse 11 where he says, I have given you the ability to have eternity in your hearts. You're not animals. You know that something so much bigger is going on and yet this bigness of what's going on can also just lead you to a little bit of frustration to struggle with it. You cannot really find out what God has done from beginning to end. This is the mysteriousness of God. And he's saying it's okay to be there. When you're going through the spectrum of life, yes, there are the times of laughing, but there are the times of weeping. And that's the hard part where you're like, okay, God, I can understand why you put the time of laughing in. But when it comes to the time of weeping, I can't really see the tapestry that you're putting together in your eternal picture here. It's the mysteriousness of God. Uh, Last week in our family devotions, we spent some time talking about the mysteriousness of God. Um, God is so much greater than us so that we can't fully understand him and his ways. His ways are higher than our ways. So while we were talking about this, I asked the family to give examples of how God is mysterious to us. And our seven-year-old, Seth, said this. Yeah, if God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, why didn't he stop them then? If God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, why didn't he stop them back then? That's that question that's wrestling with the mysteriousness of God. He's getting in his mind that something happened in the past. God created Adam and Eve. God was existing with Adam and Eve. 
He also gets this idea that Adam and Eve sinned. All right, so God, you've put time in a seven-year-old's heart to understand that you were before that, you're over that. God, why in that moment in time didn't you intercept that sin and evil? Why? And that's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying you've got eternity in your hearts, yet you cannot find out what God has really done. You can't understand the mind of God from beginning to end. But God is using that knowledge of time and eternity to show us how much greater he is and just how limited we are in our own understanding. This now starts to make God bigger than us. If Seth cannot wrap his arms around why God didn't intercept it, but he can understand that God was there, now all of a sudden he's wrestling with the mysteriousness of God. And to wrestle with the mysteriousness of God is a good thing. It's actually a comforting thing for us. Now, I think I forgot to put this passage of Scripture up on the screen, so I'll just have to read it for you. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. Just listen as I read it. Let it just pour over you. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when, there's a time frame, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, even before, time frame, even before it gets to my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind, and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Now listen to what he concludes. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The struggle that we have as Christians who believe the word of God, that believe that God is actually the one that is determining times, the struggle that we can't understand it is actually a good struggle because it points to the highness of God. And Solomon's point is that God is determining all of this. It's everything that's under his scope. It's his tapestry. It's his quilt. And it is all fitting together beautifully. He determined that you would be born in this era, not five centuries ago. He determined the times that you have gone through in your life. He determined the times of laughing and the times of grieving, the times of success, the times of failure. God has determined everything that has taken place in your life. And as a Christian, folks, the mysteriousness of God in your life, this is good. It's apt. You say, what about the struggles? I get it. We're under the quilt. I can't fully fathom it. I'll get to that in a little bit, hopefully answer some of those questions. This is life with God in time. Okay, so Solomon tells us about God, about what God's doing. Where does this lead us? Where does this truth about God being in control of every season, we're not like the world who thinks that it's an end game of zero, you die, that's it. We're Christians who believe in the bigness of God. We believe that he's putting these times and seasons, the scope and sequence of our life together. Where does this truth about God being in control of every season and every time period of life lead us? Well, notice where Solomon takes us in verse 12. He says in verse 12, I perceived, 
or I concluded. And then in verse 14, he says, I perceived or I concluded. Again, I like to underline things in my Bible, so I underline that. I perceived in verse 12, and I perceived in verse 14. There are two conclusions, which are more or less two applications. So let's go back up to verse 12 and see the first application. Verse 12 and 13. I perceived then that because of who God is, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Okay, so the theme that he is leading us to, I think, is the theme of enjoyment. Enjoying the life that God has given to us. Since God controls the times and seasons of your life, since he controls the times and seasons of the rest of the world, the work schedule, the delivery, the purchase orders, the patients coming in and going out, the phone calls that have to be taken, since God is controlling all things that are taking place, take a deep breath. Relax. Enjoy the present because God has made this an appropriate time right now for you. That's what he says. Enjoy all of this right now. Enjoy this moment. You can't really control the future. And since you can't rewrite the past, live right now in the moment and enjoy this particular gift that God has given you. This moment right now. So right now, now we're at 1034, September 26, 2021. Enjoy this moment. God has created it. It's under his hand. It's a gift from heaven. You are living in a moment that God has created. This fraction of a second is good because God has created it. This fraction is good because God has created it. This fraction is good because God has created it. And some people can't live in the moment, though. Some people can't enjoy the goodness of God right now because they fall into one of two ditches, either living in the past or constantly living in the future. Living in the past, something that's taken place, a conversation, somebody did you wrong, something like that, or maybe it's something good, and you're like, I'm totally consumed with this. I can't live in the moment. That thing that happened has affected the way I live right now. Or maybe it's the constant planning for the future. I've got this meeting. I've got this deadline. I've got this project that has to be done. I've got to go to that doctor's appointment. I've got all of this thing. And right now, there's life right around you that God has given to you to enjoy. Right now, he's given you his word to be opened on your lap, to be soaking in, to enjoy right now. Right now is a good moment for you to take in, to live and enjoy, because God has determined this moment to be good. And you're like, okay, is this some sort of weird scenario where you look at the times of laughing and you say, okay, I get that, but what about the times of weeping? Are you saying, I'm just supposed to put on a plastic grin on my face? No, the time of weeping is under the control of God so you can know that God is in control. And knowing that God is in control can give you a joy that's like those deep waters that run quiet, deep currents under the sea. You might not see it up top, but there's a deep joy where even in the hardest of times, you know, God has given you this moment. I was thinking um, 
of Jason and Rachel Hunsaker. They had their baby a week ago Friday. And it threw my mind back to our four kids. Um, Some of you are young moms, and you're waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning after you just fell asleep an hour and a half ago because the baby wouldn't fall asleep until 1.30, and now the baby's awake again at 3 o'clock, and you're scooping that little baby up in your arms. You're leaning back on the headboard of the bed, trying to feed the baby, and you're wondering, is this good? Well, God created a time to be born. And to enter into that as a young mom or a young dad who's got the bottle in between the lips of a baby and you're giving that baby life right now, boom, in that moment, it's a good moment. And then so many times you're holding that baby just thinking they're going to go off to sleep and then the diaper thunders and you're thinking, not again. (laughs) Not again. But that's a good thing. The plumbing works. This is a good thing. God has made this moment for right now. You think about a guy like Joseph, and you can't see the end picture, but here's Joseph being kicked out of his family by his brothers, and all he can see is the underside of the quilt being sold into slavery down into Egypt. All these little dangling threads that don't make any sense right now. What's the good in all of this? And then the end of Genesis allows us to see a better picture that, oh, God, you are putting together this tapestry where you're going to bring Israel, the nation, down, and you're going to use Joseph to protect them for this season. You are good in all that you do, even though it hurts. So there is this moment where Solomon says, when you realize that God is behind this picture of time here, hey, Enjoy it right now. Are you enjoying what God has given to you? Or are you squandering it? Solomon doesn't stop there. He leads to the second conclusion. Again, verse 14, look what he says. I perceived, or I concluded, I realized the second conclusion, that whatever God does endures forever. God's up to something good. Nothing can be added to it, at least from us. Or nothing can be taken away from it by us. God has done it. Here it is, so that people fear before him. Why has God done all of this for us? The purpose is so that when we open up his word and we see that God is the one who is behind this, we would have a right fear of who he is. We stand back and Fear the one who is in control of all things. We stand back and have this reverence or this awe for the one who is actually all-powerful behind all things. If you've read any of John Piper's material, you probably came across this when he's talking about fear. He says he took his boys to somebody's house one evening, and there was this big German shepherd dog that was sitting there to greet them. And the owner the house and the dog, the owner talked to John and the kids. And there's that dog, dark eyes, triangular ears perked up, that brownish black fur. And he says, don't run from the dog or else he will chase you down and tackle you. Fear the dog. 
Respect the dog so that you don't have to fear the retribution of the dog. There's the dog perched up in all of its majesty, that sort of mysterious German shepherd look, taking in everything. And if somebody darts away in disobedience, there's the German shepherd that takes off after and tackles it. And in the same way, here is God. Fear God. Revere God. Don't run from him. Don't violate him. He's put all of this together so that you could stand back and say, whoa, I better bow the knee in submission to him. I better surrender to him in this moment and not run sideways. You go through the characters of Scripture where God was leading them through difficult times. I mentioned Joseph earlier. You can go all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis and you look at Abraham. You think about Daniel, where God was leading him through a journey. You think about the disciples when Jesus first called them, hey, throw your nets down. I want you to come and follow me in faith. There's the apostle Paul who's Saul at the time, and on the road to Damascus, God meets him, and he says, I'm taking your life, now follow me. What did they do? They feared God. They had times and seasons in their lives that God was bringing them through, yet they could see God's hand, his powerful hand behind all of it. So when you come to this reality that life is not just some sort of mechanical exertion of force by nature upon your life, but you see that God is the one behind it, you see, okay, God, I want to be in awe of you. I'm seeing that I am really helpless and I'm dependent on you. Uh, You're going to be driving down the road after the services this morning, and you're going to see that some leaves are starting to change. You know, you, you take in that whole picture of creation where God has suspended the earth in space, an exact number of miles away from the sun, going around the sun, we're not pulled into the sun to burn up, we're not being thrown out into space to freeze up, we're not tethered to the sun by anything solid. God has just created this law that we would go around the sun there. And then there's the earth that's perfectly tilted a couple degrees so that when we're at this end of the sun, we start to experience fall. The sun shines a little bit less, the temperatures drop, the leaves change. It's a time or season. And then it's going to whip around the sun, and we're going to go through winter, and then we're going to come back out into spring and into summer. God is the one who is determining all of these things. He's determining the times and the seasons to all of this. God is the one that's behind it. Sovereign God. You see that out there and you're reminded, oh God, that's from you now. So what does that mean? It means, how dare I run from him in disobedience? So it causes us to ask questions. Do I revere God? Am I living this life as though God is someone small? Or am I surrendered to him? And you say, man, this is who he is. God's led his church through so many different trials back and forth. He's the one that's in control of the trials. He's the one who's in control of your future. He's the one who's written your past. It's God who is in control, so then we should fear him and be in awe of him. Jesus picked up this theme, and I'll close with this. Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 28. So have no fear of them, that is man, 
For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body. Some of you have got some big events coming up. Some of you have some things that took place and you're wondering, how did that go in that person's eyes? Jesus is saying, don't fear humans. They can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. God has created us and God brings us to an end. We stand back and we say, only God is the one who is in control of all things. So stand back and think about this reality that God really does control everything. Be in awe of him. Trust him with whatever time or season you're floating in and out of. See the moment. Enjoy it. Be reverent towards God this week. Let's pray.